0: As the Money Burns is an original podcast written and produced by Nikki Woodard based on historical research. This is a deep exploration into the lives of actual heirs and heiresses to some of America's most famous fortunes and what happens when the Great Depression hits. Each episode is comprised into three primary sections. Section one is a narrative story told with some creative license. Section two goes into the historical facts and may include analysis of sources and any biasness. Section 3 focuses on contemporary, emotional, and personal connections, making the story relevant to the current day. Now back to As the Money Burns, welcome to Newport Part 1. Do you remember your first love? Ever had a magical summer romance? What's your favorite memory from your youth? Summer is starting and love is in the air. Already a romantic love triangle is forming that will span decades. Section 1 Story A distant private rail car jostles its way along the coastline. Inside, the chubby, budding fashionista, 16 year old Barbara Hutton, can barely contain her excitement as she fidgets with her new ruby ring. She grabs a book of poetry, occasionally glancing through the pages to a sealed envelope hidden inside. Her beautiful, deep blue eyes look over at the ever-reassuring Tiki, her maitre French governess. Over to the side, her father, Franklin Hutton, reviews the Daily Stock Report. The living embodiment of the Monopoly Man, Hutton chuckles over another pattern he has outsmarted yet again. Next to him sits his over-eagerly younger wife, Irene. Hailing from Detroit, she's only a decade older than Barbara and desperately wants to be close with her stepdaughter, more like a friend or a big sister. As Irene attempts to get Barbara's attention, the stepmother's own ruby ring catches Barbara's eyes, which then reminds her of her own. She seems a little less pleased. Whatever Barbara gets, her father makes sure Irene gets too. He claims only to be fair. In truth, Irene wants to be Barbara. Another jostle knocks the book out of the teen's hand, and the envelope flings out. She hurriedly scoops them up before either parent notices. She crams the envelope back in its place. In high spirits, Barbara whispers to Tiki, I can't wait to see him again. Isn't it so romantic? Tiki knowingly smiles at her young ward, who hugs her book and stares out the window. A cool wind whips across the tiny seacoast town, now awakening as servants scurry about making final preparations for the arrivals of their masters. Windows open, sheets off the clothesline, lawns freshly cut. This hidden jewel, Newport, Rhode Island, is the summer playground of the super rich, where one truly learns the rung on the social ladder. Everyone who's anyone will be sure to appear, because in capital S society, one must be seen, and Newport is the place to be. By land or sea, the colonists return to their cottages for fun in the sun and endless activities. Another year of regattas, teas, polos, tennis, and debutante balls. The idly Lewis Yacht Club, Bailey's Beach, and the tennis casino are the popular daily hangouts. At the train station, the Huttons with servants in tow deboard their private car, among other elites. On the landing, Barbara spots John Jacob Astor the 6th a.k.a. Jakey, 16 and debonair. Waiting with his luggage, he's been there for a bit and trying not to act too perturbed. The presence of other arrivals makes his situation more humiliating. As the Hutton's cross by, Barbara cheerily greets him. He nods in forced politeness. Hutton asks the young scion if he needs assistance. At first, Jakey demurs, but then reluctantly admits his staff is late. Hutton offers him a ride home. And Jakey, too exhausted to protest, relents. Barbara glances at Tiki with a knowing look. Isn't the summer already getting better? Over on the other side of Newport, at the luxurious cottage known as Rough Point, a now 16-years-old Doris Duke has grown into a tall, awkward teenager. Dressed in workman's clothes, she hovers by the bushes, trying to get a better glance at the handsome young gardener clipping a nearby hedge. From the window, Nanaline spots her daughter and commands her inside. Deflated and embarrassed, the teen shrinks and slips by unnoticed. When Doris appears before her mother, Nanaline can hardly contain her disgust at her daughter's attire. Coldly, she slides over a document with a pen. Uneasily, Doris looks at the document. It's a bid for a Duke property. She hesitates, unwilling to sign anything that will push her father further away. The mother daughter standoff is broken when the French governess, Jenny, interrupts holding a bag. Mademoiselle Barbara shall arrive at any minute. Doris takes the excuse, grabs the bag, and rushes out the door. Jenny delights over her charge's enthusiasm, only to see Nanoline scowl. Jenny shrugs her shoulder and gives Nanaline a knowing, sly smile. Surprisingly, Nanoline returns the smile and offers a cup of tea. Doris runs so fast she bumps into the hot young gardener knocking over his barrel of clippings. dumbstruck and embarrassed, she collects her things and runs faster down the driveway, out to the Rolls Royce, and hops in. The young friends are happily reunited, immediately breaking into chatter. Barbara bows on about her earlier interaction with Jakey. From the far side of the polo fields, they stop and watch the practicing players, especially one particular muscular and sweaty Adonis. They practically fawn and fandom, Barbara swoons, I rushed back as soon as I learned the prince was going to be here. Doris in her soft baby whisper, contemplates, Do you ever wonder what life would be like if we were ordinary girls? Barbara retorts, Ordinary? I want to be a princess. With Jakey as your prince? Well, he certainly beats a gardener. Always overdressed, Barbara glances at her friend's alternative fashion choices. I was working in the garden and didn't have time to change, Doris protests. We're supposed to be fitting in this summer, so it is important we are more presentable. Barbara's stern mandate reminds Doris of her mother. Seeing the practice finishing, the girls head over to Bailey's Beach. At the ultra-exclusive club, they are outcasts, wishing to join in on all the fun. They can't help but watch Louise, 19, and reigning It Girl playing in the surf with a bevy of guys, including Jakey and that same handsome polo player from the fields, Prince Alexis Devani. Louise and the prince have an obvious playful chemistry as he picks her up and throws her into the crashing waves. Barbara and Doris can only hope next year they will be in Louise's place, but that's a big step for these two teens, essentially members of the new Rich D-list. Louise Astor of Van Allen is by birth both an Astor, yes Astor, and Jakey's cousin, and a Van Allen, an old school banking family as well as by marriage, tied to the Vanderbilts. She has the name and fortune, born and dripping with power and privilege. It is the former, the name and lineage, that eludes Barbara and Doris and therefore most affecting their rank in society. Did you get an invitation yet? Barbara asks Doris. Doris shakes her head no and drags her foot over the sand, then looks inquiringly over at her friend. Barbara shakes her head no too. They stare out at Louise, splashing around with the guys without a seeming care in the world. She pushes the prince away, only to get doused by a wave. Unhappily, Barbara clinches her poetry book. This summer, Louise finally debuts in society, delayed a year by her own father's death. It promises to be the event of the season. If Barbara and Doris want to climb the ladder before their own debuts next year, they must attend. Louise and her entourage make their way back to the cabanas, Barbara tries desperately hard to make eye contact with the prince, but he doesn't even register her existence. He snaps his towel at Louise, who teasingly sneers back. Barbara slams down her poetry book, making enough noise for some to look at her. She storms off. Inside Bailey's ladies' room, an attendant wipes down the sink. While Doris waits for Barbara, Louise with some females enters giggling. She smiles at Doris, who freezes, then ducks her head down to avoid eye contact. At the sink, Barbara and Louise meet and exchange polite pleasantries. Louise chats with her girlfriends over an actual prince attending her debut. As Louise pampers at the mirror, she gushes. He said he wouldn't miss it for the whole world. Scrubbing her hands, Barbara blurted, he loves Sylvia. Louise pauses a bit dazed. Excuse me? Territorially, Barbara repeats, Alexis, he's in love with Sylvia. Indifferent, Louise shrugs. He's like my brother. As she gathers her things, she quips, I didn't expect to see you back from Baritz so soon. Louise and Barbara, again, exchange polite smiles. Doris waves goodbye, looking even more like a spaz, as Louise with her gals head back to the beach. Doris and the attendant look at Barbara, confused. Barbara defensively protests, She's lying. I know she's lying. But his heart belongs to Sylvia. Back at their seats, Doris and Barbara gather their things to go to the next locale. When Barbara grabs her poetry book, she feels a difference. She flips to see the envelope is missing. With a big smile on her face, Barbara chirps. Cream soda? Section 2. History and Historiography The summer of 1929 promises to be one full of excitement as the super-rich gather at their favorite playground, Newport, Rhode Island. The history of Newport's elite status goes as far back as post-Civil War, when the wealthy started making annual pilgrimages to this seaside town. The Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, Astors, and other families built elaborate mansions which they humorously referred to as cottages. However, these cottages rival the best of European castles and chateaus. Ornate and befitting America's Gilded Age, Newport was the place where the wealthy from all over would gather and compete in that age-old tradition referred to as capital S. Society. Invites to events as well as status of admission indicates one's place in the hierarchy. One might be invited to the large ball, but not to the private dinner ahead of it. Small dinners could comprise of 50 people. An exclusive ball might start with a small private, <clears throat> elite dinner, then a ball afterwards comprising of their nearly 400 to 1,000 closest friends. Only the A-list were invited to every part of such an event. One of the big secrets behind Newport was its influence on marital alliances. While weddings might happen during the fall in New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., or other cities, it was Newport where the engagements were made. Back in the cities, men control business, but here in Newport, women have all the power. The summer matchmaking was high on the agenda amidst all the activities. And with the agenda of making powerful marital alliance came the tradition of the debutante ball. For society, females were only expected to be in the papers four times in their lives. Their birth, debut, marriage, and death. Oh, and the occasional childbirth announcement, but that was more about the child than the mother. The debutante ball announced the young girl's entrance into society and her marriage eligibility. A desirable debutante should be married or engaged within a year's time, with the most successful debutante would be engaged the night of her debut. If more than two years passed without a marriage, she would be considered an old maid and undesirable Spencer. To set up these potential alliances, a future debutante would start working the circuit a year before her own debut, While not allowed to attend certain events, she would be expected to learn the ropes and mingle with her relevant peers. And Doris and Barbara need to learn fast, as they are set to debut in 1930. Though they are wealthy enough to be a financial equal, their lack of lineage prevents them from being invited to the better events. They have hope. They are the first member in their families invited to join the social register in 1929. The Social Register is the official A-list of who's who among the elite. It can take a family two to three generations before being invited to join. In the case of Barbara and Doris, this has taken 40 to 50 years since their respective grandfather and father built their massive fortunes that far outstrip most of the established members. This list determines who gets invited to what and if their own events also get priority attendance of elite guests. The wealthy often have social secretaries completely dedicated to just this function, but once on the social register, one has to stay clear of scandal or they face blackballing and social exile. This alone would prevent any suitable marriages occurring. The elite run much like the royal dynasties of Europe, and much like old royal estates, usually need the influx of new cash. Thus new money, after properly vetted, eventually gain admission. The system is far entrenched, and even today's reference of the 400, meaning the top and wealthiest, is a residual from the Gilded Age, and these fortunes we will cover. The infamous number 400 comes from Caroline Astor, Grand Dame and reigning queen of society in the 1890s, who once remarked she could only admit 400 into the ballroom of her New York mansion, and thus all invite lists must be narrowed down to the best 400. The Mrs. Astor is the grandmother of both Jakey and Louise. In this world, these two teens are the elitist of the elite by birth and have a large weight to carry in following the proper social protocols. In other words, Barbara and Doris better find a way to fit in and fast. Section 3. Contemporary and Personal Relevance When I started the long road of trying to develop the story of these heirs and heiresses, I was always compelled by their budding youth and need for love as it so aligned with my own hopes and dreams at the same age, even in the same location. I've always stated to people this is the story I developed out of my own broken heart and dreams as I tried to build new ones. Fueled by love and idealism, many begin the journey into adulthood, and for our characters, they started their journeys in an era when all the rules suddenly and irreversibly changed. And now we are in an era once again where all social norms that have developed over this last century have been halted as the world flips upside down. This nostalgia of my past with its twists and turns now goes out to today's youth who are almost universally interrupted from experiencing certain rites of passages and how things like prom, graduation, summer activities, and all those little and large hallmarks of growing up are being thwarted, or at least on hold, for an undetermined length of time. Our younger and older characters, like the Spring Breakers, are going to try to continue the good life, oblivious to how much has changed. They will face backlash. However, we must understand the innocence and naivety of youth is part of their seemingly self-centeredness. Naturally, they want to live the lives promised to them, the ones especially upheld and touted in our social media world. And come on, love and hope are the pinnacles of life that keep us all moving forward. The biggest complication in life struggles is not necessarily the hardship faced, but if that hardship prevents us from ever trying to reach out again and find the good in life. That makes whatever damage caused a lifelong prison sentence. No doubt our world has changed. We have no idea by how much, what might return, what are the new normals, and what is no longer. But one way or another, time continues, and we will have another day with many more chances to flourish. My favorite Disney film quote comes from Milan. It is when the Emperor of China states, the flower that blooms in adversity is the most rare and beautiful of all. May we each find our ways to blossom from this period of darkness. Next, when we return to As the Money Burns, money can't buy love, but it sure does buy a lot of heartbreak. And in this game of fortunes, the heart might be the first casualty. Until then credits as the money burns is an original podcast written and produced by nikki woodard based on historical research archival music has been provided by past perfect vintage music check out their website at www.pastperfect.com interested in following more about as the money burns you can find us on twitter instagram facebook and the website all under as the money burns